Hi, this is Ryan Landau, and you're listening to The Drip, a podcast about how to caffeinate your campaigns. Today, I'm joined by Ginger Shimp. Ginger is a senior marketing director at SAP, and we talk about her process of building and scaling digital marketing initiatives, what an infinity loop is for a marketer, and what she's learned about podcasts through SAP's own work in the space. We spend a lot of time in today's conversation talking about SAP's award-winning podcasts. From the time that this was recorded in March until now, a lot has happened in the world of audio. Facebook made a major announcement that they're getting into audio, and they joined LinkedIn and Twitter as incumbent social networks that are now in the category. This is not only a signal that audio is a humongously important medium, and one that will be increasingly prioritized by the social networks, but it's also a signal to marketers. In the same way that you might have a specific strategy for Facebook and a specific strategy for LinkedIn, the same will be true about your audio. Yes, there will be brands that create one podcast and distribute it everywhere, just as they are now, but the brand partners that think about audio as part of Ginger's digital chop shop will be the ones that win. So what does this mean practically? Maybe you'll create long-form audio content and still share that to Apple and Spotify, but the audio that you share to LinkedIn will be focused on recruiting and DEI. The audio content that you publish to Facebook might be a little shorter and consumer-focused. Audio on Twitter? Maybe that's more customer stories and product announcements because, after all, that's where the journalists are. So that executive that wants a 45-minute weekly podcast? Instead, maybe it's a five-minute thought leadership piece that's shared to your email list, shared to LinkedIn. Venly is an audio workflow that is designed for enterprise. With Venly, you can seamlessly collaborate and distribute your company's shows to all of these different touch points in players that are custom branded as your organization. And the best part? Get listener insights that look more like social media insights and less like podcast downloads. Curious about how audio can play a role at your enterprise? Email me directly at brian at venly.co. That's brian, B-R-I-A-N, at venly, V-E-N-N-L-Y, dot C-O. And now, the incredible Ginger Shimp. Hi, Ginger. Hi, how are you? Ginger Shimp is Senior Marketing Director at SAP and an award-winning marketeer with 25-plus years of B2B experience. She's a professional certified marketer per the AMA and a certified digital marketing professional per the Digital Marketing Institute. She's also earned a Connoisseur's Certificate in California Reds from the Chicago Wine School, which I'm sure has come in handy during this pandemic. (laughs) Since 2004, Ginger has helped companies run better by telling not only the SAP story, but the stories of their customers and their customers' customers. Developing content, engaging channels, deploying tactics to educate, stimulate interest, and drive demand, marketing isn't just what she does, it is who she is. She often says that technology is changing faster today than it ever has, yet slower than it ever will. And at SAP, they don't just sell software. She believes they improve people's lives. SAP customers represent 98% of the top 100 most valued brands in the world. Ginger, did you know that SAP customers produce more than 79% of the world's chocolate, 77% of the world's beer, and 85% of the world's pet food? I did. Thank you so much for being uh, with us today. It means a great deal. When we connected offline, you you mentioned um, that you, you're fond of discussing digital marketing as a digital chop shop. Mm-hmm. Can you just define what that means? Uh, I can. It's a little bit of a long explanation, so bear with me. But it, and, and it's so funny because my SVP, she's hilarious. She just cringes every time I use that that term. But here's where, here's where we are. Um, 
we're in an always on digital world, right? And it requires us to prime the demand gen engine with constant diet of fresh assets. But we also have to be cognizant that our prospects come in different flavors, if you will. So you might have the technical users, right? So they act as advisors, you know, hey, boss, this is broken, or this isn't working, or we need to optimize something. You have kind of like middle management, right? So these are the key influencers who say, look, my team needs such and such to be um, effective, and here's where we need to go. And then you have your executives or the decision makers, right? And traditionally, the buyer's journey is represented in a very straightforward, linear fashion. You start at the beginning, you go through to the end, and then you stop. And here in the digital world, we see that fresh content. It's you know this constant requirement and, and our buyers are hyperlinked, right? They're jumping in and out of the journey at nearly unpredictable points. And I'm sure you've all heard the, that, that um, more people in the world own a cell phone than a toothbrush, I do. But those cell phones have turned them into always on customers and prospects and they're always seeking content. And we can't control when or how they'll engage with our content. Right. So it's incumbent upon us as marketers, as ambassadors of our brands to ensure that each and every one feels welcomed by our message. And so otherwise, it's just so much digital landfill. Right. So the key is to get the seminal piece created quickly and cost effectively. I call this the end because this is where, you know, it's the piece that we want them to register for. Now, let me give you an example. I'm going to go with a white paper. It could just as easily be a video or a website or an app of some sort. But whatever you choose, this asset is the mother load of information and it will always be gated. No one gets it for free. Now, once we have this created, we'll be ready to run it through the digital chop shop. We create derivative pieces that they're, they're snackable and, and they're digitally native and socially shareable. And these derivative pieces will be the, will be the first things that our prospects will encounter. And that's why I say we start at the end, the white paper, and we work backwards to create the remaining content. So a very wise man once told me that you don't have to tell them everything you know. So what we're gonna do in the digital chop shop is we take that seminal piece and we break it down into little hooks. And we have to pay attention to how people like to consume information, right? Some people like to read, that would be me. Others like to interact or listen or watch, et cetera. And so here's where the chop shop comes in. We create assets such as tweet cards and they work really well for visual people, right? The picture's worth a thousand words. We create videos that work for people who, you know, it's like a proxy for discussion. And I work with this company that does uh, video white papers. They're called Webino. And it's amazing that you could do a video white paper. I also work with professional voiceover artists who read the white paper and deliver them much the same way we deliver audiobooks, complete with chapter indexes and so, so forth. And then what I'll do is have my subject matter experts do podcasts on the topic of the white paper. And then I take snippets of the videos and the audios and, and I embed them into blogs, right? So that the blogs are now multimedia. And then I'll create an executive presentation of the white paper, and I'll put that up on SlideShare, which is now owned by LinkedIn. And we'll do infographics to promote the white paper. And you can add gamification and have fun by doing, um, you know, a survey or an assessment. And I can keep going on and on, but you get the idea. My undergrad degree was in journalism. What I basically do is I create an editorial calendar of all of these little pieces that I've chopped up and planned in my little chop shop. When you describe it, it makes a ton of sense. And then when I think about how I would apply it to my own business and my own marketing needs, I get incredibly overwhelmed. 
what is your best guidance here? Like when you consult, right, other people <laughs> on how to build out their own shop shop, you know, you, you describe this as a, an infinity loop. Can you describe a little bit more about the infinity loop and how you might break down the pieces a little bit so that someone who feels so super overwhelmed like me might be able to best implement the same type of practice? Oh, absolutely. Um, and the first time through, I'm not going to lie, it's going to be a little bit of hit and miss, right? But you come up with a calendar and, and you start to think about uh, where to apply the different pieces. Uh, but for the infinity loop in particular, you know, that it's a good mm, what, forcing function to, put, to, to make you think through it logically. And the answer is kind of two part. Um, so the first part is when you consider what we just discussed about how we create, a, say, a survey or an assessment. If we're clever, we do it with an eye towards versioning. Um, we create new content by versioning. So we've got the white paper, right? And we're doing a, a survey and we gather input from various lines of business or various industries or different sizes of business or a survey for net new prospects versus installed base. And then we would be in a position to create new infographics and executive presentations and case studies and podcasts and webcasts, web events, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So you stop to think like, how would I break my customers down and how can I take this one piece of content that probably took an, an awful lot of thought and time and money to create? How can I break it down? You know, blogs that address the different audiences and so forth. Now, I told you that the answer is two parts. So that's the first part is, is you know, the loop is that as you push in bits of information out your, through your digital chop shop, you gather more information and it turns it back in on itself and you're able to go after um, your audience with the same gated offer, but different pieces that you're ungating to lure them in. The second part is really the reason that you want to do this. So anyone can Google the marketing infinity loop and see how the customer experiences change the customer journey. Um, it's sort of an evergreen process right, uh, right now. So um, the journey used to be, give me a minute, awareness, discovery, intent, evaluation, buy right? Um, and it was very linear, like I said. Uh, with the infinity loop, we go to awareness, consideration, purchase, advocacy, and loyalty. And that loyalty, that's what feeds back into awareness of additional products and services. And the advocacy is what helps you lure others in. And both of these, in turn, set off another trip through the process. And, and I'm sure that I sort of butchered that a little bit. But like I said, if you if you Google the marketing infinity loop, um, you, you get the sort of the second part of the answer. So you mentioned that you're like always on and we need to meet people sort of where they are. But pre-pandemic, you might market to professionals while they were commuting or at an airport for business travel. But remote work mm -hmm. has disrupted that model. How are you thinking about B2B marketing today versus a year ago? Mm, tricky question. I think most of us would agree that the biggest issue is in replacing face-to-face -face events. Everyone is experiencing fatigue with video meetings and web events, and, and no one has really cracked that code yet. Um, interestingly, I see a lot of our business practices uh, are bleeding into our personal lives. Um, for example, um, my husband's parents are, um, you know, not as young as they used to be. And video calls are actually much better for them than audio calls because they can see us, right? And respond to us better than just a voice on the phone. 
Anyway, so back to business. Um, I'm looking for ways to bifurcate my online events uh, because I really do believe that it's that personal touch that, you know, I'm experienced with my in-laws, uh, whom I adore. I have the best in-laws. I'm, I'm looking to replicate that same sort of, hey, this is really working for us feeling in my business events. So what I mean by bifurcating them um, Maybe taking um, the initial part of the meeting is a traditional web event where you're giving forth a lot of information and you could do it in different ways, right? It could be, you know, uh, your, your typical presentation with a, a PowerPoint, or it could be uh, set up more like a news interview style with a round table of people. But the first part is getting the information out. Um, but then break there, during the second half of the meeting or the second part of the, of the event, um, allow for breakouts to go into individual like Zoom rooms and have hosted discussions with smaller groups where you could get more interaction. And, and that's what I mean by replicating that experience that I'm having in my personal life um, to sort of alleviate that, that constant fatigue we're getting with web events. But now I'm going to turn it back on you because I'm, I'm really curious if you've asked this question to others and have had any interesting responses. Or if you've just encountered them in your own business life. Yeah, I mean, I, I live in the audio space, right? This is what my business is, what my background is, is in, is in audio. And I think, you know, in the past, we would have a big sales fly in and there'd be 500 sales reps coming to Las Vegas and it would be like three days and we'd hire the Red Hot Chili Peppers to like close out the party, right? <laughs> I love it. Okay, so that is now happening virtually, but everyone is already virtual. And whereas you described the example of your in-laws really liking Zoom, I think for older people, that's really nice. It forms connectivity. There's some lip reading as well, if there's some hearing sure. issues, right? Yeah. But for the rest of us that are living on Zoom all day long, the idea of being on a Zoom conference, right, exclusively from 8.30 until 6 th for three straight days is sort of brutal. So, you know, for one of our, our client partners, um, they're actually going to create three podcasts. Mm -hmm. And they'll say, hey, listen, from 11 until 1 today, listen, you go for a walk, go take some me time, go to the gym, listen to this podcast, though. And then the next day, they'll do the same thing for the second podcast. And then on the third and final day, it'll be the third podcast. So they're still accessing their employees in, with high value information. They're still connecting with people, but they're using different forms of media to do that and enabling people to sort of like go get some fresh air, right? I, I really love what you A couple of things that you said that I love, you know, first of all, get away from the computer, right? So that you're forced to listen. Um, so here's a confession. I started listening to podcasts and audiobooks. Several, um, a colleague, of, a really good colleague, friend of mine, and I were having this discussion. How on calls, this was pre-pandemic, we weren't paying attention. We were multitasking. And we had to train ourselves to listen. And we started listening to podcasts and audiobooks, uh, whether we were, like you said, walking, exercising, traveling, what have you. It was embarrassing how many times I would have to rewind like, you know, 10 minutes because my mind was not paying attention. And I really trained myself to listen. But you also brought up something else when you were talking about um, if there are some, um, maybe some hearing issues. And that is that podcasts can be wonderful for the hearing impaired. 
because they do that automatic transcription. It's almost like having subtitles and, and you could be very inclusive. In fact, one of my mentors in podcasting, um, his name's Evo Terra. He owns a, a company called um, uh, Simpler Media out of, um, now there's a couple of companies called that, but his is out of Phoenix. And he's actually uh, profoundly deaf in one ear and, and he's a master podcaster. And um, I just think that we can be so much more inclusive with technology if we pay attention to it. Um, so, you know, for those who may not be listening in language, the, you know, the ability to have translations and transcriptions for those, like, you know, obviously with hearing impairment, um, you know, it works really, really well, the ability to back up. And the other thing that I can do on you know, for the digital chop shop is when I'm working with my subject matter experts who are really, really smart about what they do, but maybe they're not great writers. I can hire ghost writers and get the writer on with the subject matter expert, record the conversation. And then the ghost writer is much more able to write in the voice of the person he's writing for. I would not expect my writer to know about technology so why would I expect my subject matter experts to know how to write? You know, everybody has to play to their strength. A little bit of a side trip, but, but you just triggered so many thoughts when you were talking right there. I, I just, I love how you said, get away from the computer, pay attention to what you're listening to. I, I, that, that was brilliant. Once in a while on my tombstone, it'll <laughs> say full of not bad ideas. Uh, that's, that's what will be <laughs> embedded for me forever. So let's talk about your podcast. Um, yeah. and, and because I know it's, an important and exciting part of your marketing mix. What was your inspiration for creating the podcast? How are you measuring success? To go back for a moment, where did you see podcasts playing as a part of your infinity loop strategy? Yeah, I mean, a difficult question because it, like any tactic, right? It can move around um, and there are different kinds of podcasts. At SAP, we do a lot of them. We do, um, you know, the uh, whether it's uh, more of a dialogue, an interview style like we're doing here, or sometimes it could be a um, sort of a soliloquy, right? You know, seven minutes with, and, and, and it's almost like a video blog. Um, and then also, you know, we used to have a position chief storyteller, and we do a lot of audio dramas or a number of audio dramas. I was involved in creating one. Remember, I told you that I worked with a really good colleague, uh, and we were having the discussion about uh, how we don't listen. He and I uh, created Searching for Sally E, which was an audio drama um, several years ago. And most recently, I'm working with another colleague and she's created one, uh, uh, we're working together, we created one called The Retrofuturist Chronicles. So these, both of these podcasts tell a story. And, you know, it's, it's really, you know, in a way you have to uh, go back to why we wanted to tell a story. So let me take out a couple of minutes here uh, and try and experiment. So you mentioned at the beginning that uh, SAP customers, um, we are, our customers are responsible for 85% of the world's pet food, 65% of the world's televisions. They, they're, they produce 64% of the world's ice cream, 62% of the world's movies thinking, thinking 79% of the world's chocolate, 77% of the world's beer. Like who doesn't like ice cream, movies, chocolate, and beer, right? 69% of the world's toys and games. So quick, tell me what percent of the world's ice cream is produced by SAP's customers? 
kind of hard to remember. I mean, if you walk away thinking, wow, companies that run SAP are killing it, I'm okay with that. But those stats, as, as amazing as they are, it's really hard for people to keep them in their head. But let me tell you a story. Uh, I'll tell you a love story. And the love story is about a little boy. He's seven years old. And he's in the back of this, you know, 1950s rusted out red Ford pickup truck. And he's with his puppy. And it's midnight. And they're in Bolivia. And they're going down this dirt road. And the, the wind is blowing and, and, and howling. And the moon is out. And if I were to ask you, how old is that little boy? You'd know, he's seven. And if I said, where is he? You know, he's in Bolivia, he's in a truck, you know? And, and what's this love story about? Well, probably about a little boy and his puppy. And the point is that more of your brain is engaged with stories. Um, when you listen to a story that's being told to you or read to you, it activates the audio cortex of your brain. I'm gonna get a little scientific here and I'm going to give credit to a lot of this, to um, uh, my friend, Tom Shapiro. You can read his books. He's, he's brilliant. He's the CEO of a company. It's called Stratabeat. Um, but anyway, so he's- I mean, he's I'm really, CEO of a company that doesn't make me brilliant. And, and you, <laughs> you, well, you, you, you didn't teach me all about how the brain works. <laughs> Tom just spent a lot of time telling me how my brain works, uh, which was kind of amusing in and of itself. So, okay. When you're, when you're engaging with a story, it also fires up your left temporal cortex, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. So it's the region that is receptive to language. So this is the part of your brain that is also capable of filtering out like noise and, you know, overused words or cliched. And that's why most skilled storytellers are careful about the language they use. And they employ a host of literary techniques and, and it keeps your brain engaged. Now, I'm fortunate that I'm married to a master storyteller and Shakespearean scholar, and I get this stuff like whether I want it or not all day, all night long. But the point is that once that part of your brain is engaged, the other regions soon begin to participate in the process, right? So for instance, once you begin to feel some sort of an emotional engagement with a story, it's because the frontal and the parietal cortex I'm screwing up. The, don't you love it when you read words and you know what they are, but then you have to say them and you have no idea how to write down. So forgive me here. But those other areas have been stimulated. And then research always also shows us that the brain activity lasts for days in this case. And that explains why good stories stay with us. You know, if I said Goldilocks, you don't even need me to repeat and the three bears and you know exactly what the story is. Now, additionally, stories also improve our ability to recall information that's embedded in them. I think there was an estimate that says like we can recall facts like 20 times more effectively when they're part of a story than just an isolated data. So that's why we decided to do a podcast that was an audio drama. Um, we wanted to engage our listeners' minds and, and show them, give them theater of the mind rather than give them a bunch of statistics. Now, the, our first trial at this was, was successful, but I'm really proud of the second one that we're doing right now because we've put a lot more structure around it. Um, I don't know if you recall the old PBS masterpiece series, um, you know, it opens, it's like a black and white cartoon. And there's like this, I think it's like a woman, it's black and white and it's hand-drawn, right? And, and, and she's um, 
going to a cemetery and then she goes, ah, you know, this little scream. And then she's lying on her back prone on like a crypt or something like that. And then the story opens, right. And you get a host and, and it's, you know, Diana Rigg or it's, you know, um, some other really, um, uh, really smart individual, like a Robert Oswald or whatever. Anyway, so they come out and they tell you what story you're going to see. And then they show you the film and then you come back and you have your host who wraps it up for you and then maybe kicks it over to a conversation with a participant from the film, you know, could have been the director or the writer or what have you, the the cinematographer. So with our new podcast, we have that story concept, uh, which we adore. um, And, you know, it's comedy, the Retrofuturist Chronicles. And we have our own Diana Rigg, our, one of our, our uh, senior VPs from our global VPs, uh, agreed to be the opening and the closing for us. Um, Helen Dwight, she opens the Retrofuturist Chronicles. Then we have the story. And then she comes in and does the wrap up. And then she hands it over to a discussion about technology within the industries. And our, at SAP, we actually have someone whose title is uh, the SAP Futurist, Martin Wazowski. So Martin comes on and he has a guest and they talk about technology and how it's changing and affecting um, the, the various industries where our customers are working and living and playing every single day. So not, only, not unlike how you and I were discussing about how technology has affected our own communications in our personal lives as well as in our business life. So that was a very long answer to a, a quick question but did I get where you wanted to go? No, you were great. So I, I'm going to get oh, you out. You. I'm going to get you out on this. Uh, okay. So you did uh, searching for Salai. Did I pronounce that correctly? Salai. Salai. So you did searching for Salai. Yep. You have the new one coming out. You do other audio content that might be the more traditional thought leadership, interview, yep. research heavy type stuff. Mm. What is your advice for brands or businesses that are thinking about starting a podcast? Oh, wow. So first of all, talk to experts like yourself, right? Because I'm just a participant. Um, but, and like I said, I had a mentor, Evo Terra, uh, who helped me with understanding the podcast space. But what I would say from being down in the trenches and actually doing the work is um, understand what you're trying to um, achieve with your podcast. So we have uh, at SAP, uh, uh, this is not a pitch for our show or, or anything like that. I, I'm, it's just, it's easy for me to come up with examples and I'll try to come up with examples that are not SAP as I go along. But we have one that's coming out uh, called Experience and it's, it's peer-to-peer. So Experience is spelled with P-E-E-R, right? And they are trying to do sort of peer-to-peer learning and, and well, you get the idea. So my stumbling about is not going to help. One of my favorites, Pam Didner had a seven minute marketing podcast and she was all about in seven, it was a soliloquy, right? Expert in seven minutes, I'm going to tell you something you really need to know. So it's quick and it's hard hitting and you're good to go. And um, I have, I just, I have my go-to podcasts, right? But the point is try to figure out what you're trying to do with your podcast, because it may not be standing up your own podcast. It may be going to a different podcast. And there are a lot of them out there. So, you know, you have a a lot of competition or a lot of resources, depending on where you're going. And one of the things that I do is um, I like to tell people, and this is not original, sorry, it's a cliche, but it works. Fish where the fishes are. 
So if what you're really trying to do is to reach people who listen to podcasts, then luring them over to a website may not be your best bet. Maybe what you need to do is work with your PR company and do sort of, you know, a roadshow and go and guest on other podcasts. But before you do that, research and understand what it means to be a guest on some of these podcasts. You have to listen to a couple of their episodes. You have to get to know their hosts like yours truly. Um, And if you're going to do, um, you know, an audio drama, if that plays part in your storytelling um, uh, uh, sort of uh, strategy, then you have to understand that it's not a case. Well, not you have to understand what we found is it's not a case of if you build it, they will come. And so we got into all kinds of ways of figuring out how to promote an audio drama to a business audience. You know, that was not something that uh, had a lot of examples before. GE did a wonderful one. And they actually, I, I stole their idea, quite frankly. They're an SAP customer and, and they're amazing. And when I heard their audio podcast, I knew I just, that it was exactly the answer that we needed. So I guess if I had to boil it down, start with what are you trying to accomplish? Where is your audience? Can you lure them to you? Or do you need to go and be, get in front of them? And are you trying to have a very technical discussion? Or do you need, you know, sort of that more storytelling aspect, which, um, you know, like I said, it has the, the staying capacity, right? And, you know, once you determine what your strategy is going to be, I would opine that you probably need to start a little bit more slowly. So if you think that you want to do a five-minute podcast every day, maybe start with a weekly 10-minute podcast and build yourself up. Um, And it all goes back to the editorial calendar. Where does it fit with everything else that you're doing? It's an integrated strategy, not a once and done. Um, Try to think about the folks in your audience's who may not be well served. Again, going back to maybe some um, of, of the you know, disabilities question and turning those into abilities, which sounds really trite, but it's easy and fun to do. Uh, and you wind up serving people who aren't necessarily well served and that's good for you. And then you know, lastly, measure the heck out of it, right? I mean, you do podcasts and it's, they're not gated. So your measurement comes in many different flavors, but you can't overlook it. Okay. Now I promise this is the last question. What is your true North uh, data point for your podcast? Oh, so one would think that it's just sheer volume of listeners, but honestly, it's the volume of listeners um, who take an action so, uh, and, and here I'm going to get into technicalities where um, I'm on shifting sand because I really am, I'm not the expert here. But you can embed pixels in your landing pages that let you know that the call to action that you always include in your podcast um, is working, right? So it's, it's the equivalent of doing any kind of paid advertising where um, if you... Uh, put out a unique tracking URL, you know that all the people who hit this link came from your Twitter feed or they came from LinkedIn or an email or, you know, a a banner ad that you put on a a webpage. Well, you can put the pixels on your site so that you can 
and, and use um, a unique URL. So you say, go to sap.com slash something unique. And everyone who hits that, they could only have picked it up from your podcast, right? So now you know that you're tracking not only the audience that you want, but an audience who's engaged and incented to take action. And that's what you're looking for in a, in a B2B or in, in any kind of a business scenario. If you're in it for just the pure entertainment value, you just want the numbers to go up. Right. And you want to have a talent agent who can repurpose that into TV and film on Netflix. Right. Because we have to monetize it. Monetize. <laughs> multi-purpose monetization. Well, and one thing that people, you know, I think that they're coming to find out is, you know, in this pandemic, when we all got shut up in our own um, places and, and we couldn't socialize, it was the artists who saved us, right? It was the streaming services and, and the podcast producers and, and, and so forth. And, and, you know, the books and the audibles uh, who came in and helped us, you know, and, and, you know, before long we were doing virtual tours of museums because we couldn't get out anymore. So, uh, you know, there, the business is not devoid of art. And, and it's something that we have to keep in mind. But a lot of times people think that because it's art, you don't monetize it. And that, that, that's not necessarily true for us. Ginger, thank you so much for your wisdom today. Ah, how kind you are. How would I not come and listen to someone say something so nice? Ginger, thank you again for the amazing wisdom today. If you like today's episode, you're going to love my next conversation with Sally Kurtz Schiff. Sally is the Vice President of Internal Communications at Hilton. Thank you again, and until next time, with Sally Kurtz Schiff.